prayer. Father in heaven, we approach your word with empty hands and uh, a hoping heart that you'd uh, fill us with your wisdom, that you'd help us to understand, that you'd calm our hearts. We uh, see the violence and the chaos in the world around us today and <clears throat> and all over the world. It's not just here. Uh, I agree with Mark that I think we're getting really close to your return, but <clears throat> I can't prove that. And I have to take it day by day, and I want to be able to focus my attention on you. And I want, as we study your word, that it would focus our attention on you. And that whether it's today or next week or 10 years from now or 100 years from now, that our eyes will be focused on you and they'll be looking to your hand and not to the circumstances. <clears throat> we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, over the last three weeks, we discussed a number of things in regard to the end times. <clears throat> and <clears throat> what the church is supposed to be doing, how we're supposed to be behaving in regard to everything around us, and what is going to happen, not what's likely to if we don't rally to the flag and make it not happen. No, all these things are going to happen. The book of Revelation was written by God, not man. <clears throat> this isn't something, it's not a warning of things that might happen. It's a statement of what's going to happen, and that's what we went through two weeks ago. And last week we talked about then how, do, how should we be responding to all the rumors and the hoaxes and the attacks on the church. <clears throat> and we talked about that. But about week, last week or the week before, we briefly mentioned Paul's comment that the, the day of the Lord would not catch us unawares because we are children of the light and not of darkness. I'd like to go back to that for a moment. <clears throat> First Thessalonians chapter 5. <clears throat> Remember, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> seemed to have really messed up my throat this morning. <clears throat> you remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that the issue, that he was talking about the, uh, the rapture. <clears throat> he said that we were to encourage one another with these words. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he's talking about the day of the Lord, and he, right after talking about the rapture, he says that the day of the Lord begins as a thief in the night. And we talked about that, that the rapture is the only portion of the day of the Lord that could rightly be referred to as coming as a thief in the night because it comes without any further warning. Everything after that is completely choreographed and scheduled. You can say this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. <clears throat> That's not like a thief in the night. <clears throat> but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, <clears throat> he starts off talking about the tribulation, explaining that that is the destruction that's coming immediately after the rapture. But in verse 4, he says, But you, brethren, speaking to the believers, <clears throat> are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Nobody's going to get left behind that's a believer. <clears throat> if you've placed your trust in Jesus you belong to him permanently. He's not going to leave you behind. You're not going to miss the boat, as it were. Um, some of you have lived in areas where you had to catch a ferry to get to such and such a place. And if you miss the ferry, that's just too bad. It's gone. You know, they like to say, I think that ship sailed some time ago, Chad. Yeah, it did. As a matter of fact, and the next one's tomorrow morning, 7 o'clock. Be there. You know, that, that's a reality in our world. But this is one you're not going to miss. 
Why? Because you already belong to him. <clears throat> he says you're children of the light. You're not children of darkness. You're children of the light not, and children of the day. You're not of the night nor of darkness. Verse 6, therefore let us not sleep. Why? That's, that's our responsibility as children of the light, to live like it. Okay, but it doesn't affect whether we are. We don't live as children of the light to get that way. We live as children of the light because we're that way, because we've been born again. <clears throat> Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. They that be drunken are drunken in the night. You ever wonder why it's so dark inside bars? Okay. <clears throat> but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. I'm not going to dwell on these things, but I want to point out <clears throat> that God goes on to explain what it means to be children of the light. For the hope of salvation, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that, listen carefully, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Because some people, well, you know, the whole church is falling asleep. They're going to, no, yeah, that might be. But the, the fact is, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, whether you wake or sleep, you're going to live with him. I, I chose the song this morning, the, Come Home at Supper Time, for a reason. Because as it's coming today, we're all going home as believers. Whether you're ready or not, whether you think you've accomplished the things you wanted to accomplish or not, whether you're living right then the way God wants you to or not, when supper time comes, you're going home. Okay. <clears throat> Richard went home at almost 89. My cousin went home at, I think, 63. I'm not sure. He might have been 64. Um, he might have just turned 64 because I think he's a year and a half younger than I am. But he says, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify, build each other up, edify one another, <clears throat> even as also you do. Okay. So let's return to that idea. What does it mean to be children of the light? And how should it affect our lives knowing that we are children of the light? <clears throat> Well, maybe a first thing to consider is what's the opposite? What's darkness? Well, ironically, darkness doesn't have any substance of its own. Darkness can only be described in terms of absence of light. How dark is it? Well, how little light is there? That's what you're measuring. You don't, there is no dark meter. There's lots of light meters, photometers, whatever they call them. Uh, there are no dark meters. I can go to any store and ask for a flashlight, and they'll probably have one. I've never seen a store where you could go buy a flash dark. They just don't make them. Why? There's no such thing as a ray of darkness that you can unshine into someplace. There's lots of sources of light that you can shine a ray of light into something. <clears throat> all different colors, all different intensities, but darkness can only be measured in terms of the absence of light. In fact, uh, Rick, uh, not Rick, Randy and I were talking this morning about Genesis, he was reiterating how the first four words of Genesis 1 met his need as he reconsidered what it means to, in the beginning, God, for him to be the, the primary everything in your life, for him to be above everything and before everything 
in your life, <clears throat> you say you spent four hours thinking on just that idea. That's pretty good. Next couple of verses says that he created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and and it says that the that darkness was upon the face of the deep. It says, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good. He divided the light from the darkness, and the light he called the day, and the darkness he called night. Okay, what does it mean to divide light from darkness? You don't have to divide light from darkness. It is divided from darkness. Well, but it wasn't up till then, you see. When he said, let there be light, it permeated everything. There was no shadows. How do I know? Because we'll we get to the book of Revelation, the new heaven and new earth, it says there's no need for sun or moon or lamp or stars or any other luminary, a source of light, because the lamb is the light. You don't need to take a lamp into a room for it to be light in there. It's already light in there. Why? Because Jesus is there too. <clears throat> so when God said, let there be light, initially the light was literally everywhere, inside, outside, everything. There were no shadows. For him to divide the light from the darkness, and the light he called the day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and morning the first day, means that he had to limit his light. He had to say that it was possible for there to be shadows, that if something comes between the source of light and the object that it's shining on, then that object will be in the dark. <clears throat> he had to make a temporary change in the character of light. Because his light permeated everything. <clears throat> the light we see today is limited. It can be held back. And to the degree that you hold back light, you will experience darkness. Start thinking. We're not just talking about physical light. It's going to become more and more obvious that when God talks about light, he's not limiting it to photons. Okay? <clears throat> to the degree that you limit light, you will experience darkness. That's actually the only way we can describe light, a darkness, is in terms of the absence of light. <clears throat> light dispels darkness because it's in its character to do so. It's, it's just the nature of light is that it undoes darkness. Some of you have been in a real dark place and had a, a match or a cigarette lighter or a tiny candle or something that you lit, <clears throat> and you found that even that tiny source of light was enough if you looked where the light was shining it was enough that you could walk safely and get yourself out of there, get back to where there was a lot of light. <clears throat> maybe you're in a cave, maybe you're in a, a dark room and looking for the breaker switch to turn the power back on. Whatever it was, even a tiny source of light used correctly is enough to dispel darkness because that's what light does. Light dispels darkness. <clears throat> so then... Actually, Ephesians 5.13 flat out says that. It says all things that are reproved, we're going to read this in its context in a little bit. <clears throat> all things that are reproved are made manifest, are made visible, made known by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. That's what light is. It's what makes things visible. It's what makes things known. Okay. That includes physical light, of course, but in the context of the scriptures we're reading, it's clear that something else is in view. <clears throat> So then we need to ask the question, what is light? If it's not just a stream of photons, and by the way, light is both a wave and a particle, I'm aware of that, I can't describe darkness in those terms. I can only describe darkness in terms of the absence of light. It has no substance of its own. So what is light? As we study the scriptures, we find that God defines this specific type of light for us. 
In Psalm 119, verse 105, if you haven't memorized this, you ought to. It says, Thy word is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. Thy word. God's word is where we get his light and his wisdom. Another verse in the New Testament, 2 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, he says, We have also, he, he was just talking about in the context, he was talking about this wonderful experience where Peter and James and John got to go on the mountain of Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, and they heard God's voice personally. And they saw Elijah and um, Moses, I guess it was, yeah. Uh, but following up on that, rather than saying, yeah, you need to experience that too, what does he say? He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, God's word. Whereunto you do well, that's the plural ye, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Speaking specifically of God's word. He says that's the source of the light and you need to focus your attention on where that light is shining. And if you have doubt about something, then shine the light of God's word on it and find out. See, if I'm in a dark place, I have to look where the light is. And if I need to see over here, then I need to shine the light over there. If you've ever worked on a car in the middle of the night with a little bitty flashlight held in your teeth, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're turning your head around, trying to crane your neck to get the light to shine on that next tool you need to pick up or the next little screw that you dropped, and now it's down on top of the exhaust manifold or someplace where you really can't get at it very well. Some of you guys might know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, Light is really, really important at that point. So remember that the light is what reveals or makes visible things that would otherwise be in darkness. I think it's instructive to remember that Jesus is more than once identified in Scripture as being the Word. In John 1.1, 1, 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yes, it goes on to name that he's the creator. It says, All things were made by him, and apart from him was nothing made that was made. It goes on after that to say, In him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness could not overpower it, it says in the newer translations. The word in Greek could either mean understand or overpower. Uh, King James translators translated it comprehend. It could mean either one, and both are true. The darkness does not understand the light, and it's not able to overpower it. Why? Because the character of light is to overpower darkness. And light, light is the only thing that overpowers darkness. We're living in a dark world. <clears throat> John goes on, verse 9, to say that Jesus is that true light coming into the world and lightens every man that is born. <clears throat> uh, and in verse 14, he finally says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among men, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John 1, 1 through 14 clearly identifies what kind of light and who that light is. Finally, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am, well, actually in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. But in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. <clears throat> so using this God-given light analogy, the eyes of our heart should respond to the light of God's word. By the way, those eyes of your heart are called the eyes of your understanding in Ephesians 
the eyes of our heart should apply, should, should focus on and respond to the light of God's word, they should be specifically responding to Jesus and not the words of the enemy. We have a choice in this world. I can listen to all the voices around me. I can listen to the yammering of the politicians and, and newscasters and comedians and everybody else that's got a voice in this world, and they all do. I can listen to the dog barking next door. You know, I can listen to the, the neighbor's got a little baby goat, and that thing spends all day wondering where his mother is. Okay? Am I going to let it bother me? No, that's just what a baby goat does. Okay? But there's lots of voices around us. So using this God-given analogy, we need to think about how we're, we're responding to what. <clears throat> I was told by two different people, both of whom had taken trips to the Holy Land, that someplace where they were driving around in Israel, they got stopped in what amounted to gridlock traffic because there were two flocks of sheep crossing paths in the road in front of them. And both of them thought, oh, we're never going to get out of here because they're never going to get these sheep sorted back out as to whose sheep are whose. The two shepherds greeted each other and just kept walking, calling their sheep. And the two flocks of sheep completely flowed through each other. The only chaos is them shouldering each other around as they went through. And as the shepherds got further apart, there was zero struggle to decide whose sheep were sheep was whose because the sheep were following their shepherd's voice. The, vo the shepherd kept calling his sheep, each of them. And the sheep knew that voice and they followed that voice only. And as they got further apart, there's simply two flocks of sheep again. There was no confusion whatsoever. <clears throat> I think there's a powerful lesson there. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Okay. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you turn back to your left a little way to Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want to read the first 14 verses. <clears throat> Actually, it would help if I was in chapter 5. Let me try again. <clears throat> Starts off, verse 1, Be therefore followers of God. Why? Well, because these are born-again people. That's what he's been talking about in the first three chapters. To be therefore followers of God as dear children. That's what children do is they follow their parents. They follow their father. They want to imitate their parents. In fact, that word followers can be translated imitators. <clears throat> and walk in love. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And then he tells about things to leave behind in the darkness. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Saints means holy ones. It means people that God's put his mark on you and you belong to him. You're for his use. That's what he calls a saint. Pat told us a story one time. I loved it. He was in a church where they were teaching on that. He says, you're a saint. He says, I want you to turn to the person next to you and introduce yourself as saint so-and-so by your first name. So he turned to the guy next to him and says, Hi, I'm St. Patrick. 
And the guy next to him looks at him and says, hi, I'm St. Thomas, and I doubt it. <clears throat> A little bit of spiritual ser serendipity there. <clears throat> but he says, we're to live this way as befits saints. We're to leave these things behind. Verse 4, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. This is, again, what it means to follow Jesus. <clears throat> for this you know, verse 5, for this you know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God on everybody. Is that what it says? Cometh the wrath of God on who? The children of disobedience. That's where you used to be. You're not there anymore. The day you trusted Jesus as your Savior, you became one of the children of light. You are no longer one of the children of disobedience. God is not mad at you anymore. Your sins have already been judged. Where were your sins judged? At the cross. Okay, all of them. Verse 7, Be not therefore partakers with them. You do not belong to them, don't partake with them in the, their deeds of darkness. <clears throat> For you were sometimes, once upon a time, darkness. But now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Live that way because that's who you are. For the fruit, notice it's singular, fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. If you went over to Galatians chapter 5, you'd read the ninefold fruit of the Spirit there. It's fruit, singular but there's nine aspects of it. But the works are listed individually. Uh, we're to be, says the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works, plural, of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest, made clear, made visible, by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. If we have been asleep, we've been living in spiritual deadness, even as a believer, and that's, that's entirely possible. You remember we talked about Samson, who, yes, he was a man of God. He's even listed in Hebrews chapter 11, in the uh, Hall of Fame of Faith chapter, if you want to call it that. Uh, but he ended up his life blinded and working for the enemy. Yes, God used him one more time right in the last few minutes of his life, but the fact is a believer can end up blinded and working for the enemy. If that's where you find yourself, he says, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. <clears throat> God still wants to have fellowship with us. So Paul explained quite a bit about the changed relationship between us and the world. We don't belong there anymore. I don't live there anymore. I'm no longer a citizen of the world. He tells us a lot of things that need to be left behind in the darkness. He tells us a number of things to be embraced as being part of the kingdom of light. Our lives are supposed to be a reproof to the darkness. As Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But there's some other ways that we should respond to the darkness of the world around us. What might they be? 
We've already read several of them. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. You turn back to your right just a little bit from Ephesians. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved... This, this is Paul's favorite church, if I can say so. He, these are the people that he led the Philippian jailer to the Lord in the jail, uh, or in, actually in the jailer's house. And this church was born of that tiny revival that started there in Philippi. And they're the only church that regularly supported him. And he had a really good relationship with them. And if you read the book of Philippians, there are no rebukes in there. There's no corrective teaching in there. Corinth, my goodness. He spent 18 months there, I think. And there's nothing but corrective teaching there. They were a messed up group of people. They're believers, but they had a lot of problems. Philippi was doing good. But he says, <clears throat> Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as, in my, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is the outworking of saved people. They had a hard life. They were in poverty, we find out later. And looked down upon by the whole society around them as well. But it says, the next verse says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is the outworking of the normal life of a saved person. That God's working in them to give them the desire to serve and to give them the power to go ahead and do so. That's the outworking of salvation in a person's life. <clears throat> it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputings. If you're always complaining, always arguing, then you're not walking as a child of the light. If you can do all things with, without murmuring and disputing, the result, verse 15, is that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Anybody reading the papers or, or watching the news or the internet or anything? A crooked and perverse nation. That's where they lived. That's where we live. And what are we supposed to do there? The next phrase, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what it means to follow Jesus. He didn't say for us to get away from that nation that's crooked and perverse. He didn't say for us to run for our lives or hide in a cave someplace. He said you shine among them as lights in a dark place. And the next verse is even more important. It goes right with it, I should say, I guess. Verse 16 is holding forth the word of life. Your purpose in being here is to hold forth the word of life, to offer the gospel of salvation to people around you. That's our reason for being here. I don't know if you thought this through, but there's not one single thing that we can do for God that we couldn't do better in heaven than here except that. Can I love people better when I don't have a sin nature anymore because I'm in heaven? Oh, yeah, I can love everybody then. Uh, can I worship better? Can I praise better? Can I uh, sing better? I hope so. Can I do... But how about sharing the gospel? You don't get to after that. That one you can only do here. Holding forth the word of life. That's why we're here. Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Paul was saying, live this way so I'm not going to be ashamed when I think of you. 
Yes, our lives are a living testimony, but it always goes a step further. We're holding forth the word of life. The gospel is our reason to be in the world. We're to be shining as lights and holding forth the word of life, offering God's grace to sinners such as ourselves. So what does Jesus say about this business of functioning as children of the light? Well, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, he says that you're the light of the world, plural, is you're the light of the world. No man lights a candle and then puts it under a bushel. Rather, you put it on a candlestick so that it gives light to everyone in the house. I don't know if you've ever noticed, if you put an oil lamp on the floor, it lights up an area about this big and that's it. But if you hang it up close to the ceiling or put it on a, a high place, the whole room has some light. You can see your, your way around pretty well. Uh, an oil lamp, a candle, anything like that. <clears throat> Our power goes off fairly often. I have some experience with oil lamps. Uh, he says that nobody does that. They put it on a candlestick. It gives light to all that are in the house. Verse 16 is the capstone to this. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Not you, God. We get these instructions, this word of wisdom from Jesus directly. That's our best source. But what's the alternative? If I decide I'm going to fight the darkness, but I'm not going to go to God's word to get my source of light or my source of wisdom, either one, what are the alternatives? When somebody claims that they're one of the good guys, they're on the A-team, they're fighting the darkness, but they don't go to God's word, there's only three other sources, according to James. He says, this wisdom does not descend from above. It's earthly, sensual, devilish. It's from your flesh or the world or the devil himself. Those are the other sources. If you insist on going someplace else for your wisdom, I don't care if it's philosophy or, or I don't know, a creed or something, or just human wisdom, or, you know, recent studies have shown, uh, how many of you heard that phrase? <clears throat> uh, if you're going someplace else for your wisdom, then God says it's one of those three sources, the world, the flesh, or the devil. That's it. Okay, we need to think about that. But it's a privilege being a child of God. <clears throat> king Saul had the privilege of being not only a child of God, but king of Israel, first king of Israel. He didn't use that privilege very well. And it cost him more and more and more as he continued to bobble around and just do things his own way. And eventually his only human counselor uh, that had been any good to him, Samuel, died. <clears throat> God wasn't talking to Saul anymore at all. So Saul went to another source of wisdom. Anybody remember who it was? It was what we call the witch at Endor, a necromancer, a woman who had, was supposedly able to call up the dead. Now apparently what she was used to seeing was a ventriloquist demon who would talk to her and tell, us th tell her things and convince her clients that they were you know, getting advice from beyond the grave. When Samuel actually showed up, it scared the life out of her. She was terrified. And she knew right away that Saul had fooled her, that it was the king that she was talking to, because she'd been afraid to even try. She says, no, if I try to bring up the dead, Saul will kill me. He says, no, 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 don't worry about it. We'll, we'll take care of you. And he did. He didn't punish her. But Samuel, didn't, Samuel ignored her. Samuel talked to Saul. He says, why have you called me up to disturb me? And he says, well, God won't talk to me, so I wanted to talk to you. 
He says, God won't give you any advice, so you want my advice? You're going to be here with me tomorrow. You and your sons are both going to be, are all going to be dead tomorrow. You don't get my advice. See you tomorrow, bud. And that was it. See, Saul didn't use his privilege very well, and it got taken away from him. He got taken home. He got called home. And in a violent way. He was still a child of God, but he got called home. He didn't use that privilege very well. How are we using the privileges given to us as children of God? Well, think about what that privilege is. First place, I'm no longer enslaved to the spiritual darkness that once held me. That's a privilege. I'm no longer a slave to that darkness. I've been forgiven permanently of all the sins, past, present, and future in my life. And I am seen by God as his real child, not some waif that he dragged in off the street and cleaned me up a bit and said, see if you can stay out of trouble till supper time. Nope, I'm his real child. How did I get that way? By being born again. That's what born again means. The day you trusted Jesus as your Savior, you were born again as a real child of God. Not just some little orphan that he pulled in out of pity. You're his child. You belong to him. Yeah, you want to try to stay clean till supper time, but at the same time, we've got stuff to do because we are his children. We have a privilege. <clears throat> he sees us as his real children. That's an important idea because that's the core issue. That's our position in Christ. We're no longer part of the domain of darkness. We've been transferred into what he says, the kingdom of Jesus, the light of the world. In Colossians 1.13, he says that we've been translated out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. That's Jesus. That's the light of the world. And it's a permanent transfer. Jesus says so over and over. I'm only going to highlight a couple of passages. It's not by any means an obscure teaching. Don't get the idea that you know, these are the only few verses that teach this. There's, it's all the way through the scripture. I can teach this from Genesis, honest. <clears throat> Turn to John chapter 11, please. Gospel of John. We're going to do this backwards. We're going to go to John 11, John 10, John 5. In that order, it's for a reason. John chapter 11, verse 26. You remember the context was that Lazarus, Jesus' friend, and Martha and Mary's brother had died. He's already dead. He's in the grave. He's been in the grave for four days. Jesus shows up, he's talking with Martha, and she says, if you had shown up, if you'd been here, you wouldn't have died. And he says, he that believeth in me shall never die, verse 26. Okay, that's interesting. He's talking about somebody who's already dead. So obviously, physical death is not what's on the table here. All right, the next one, John chapter 10, back up one chapter. John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. We already read this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish except, it doesn't say any except, does it? It says they shall never perish. Okay? Back all the way up to John chapter 5. We'll, we'll come back to all these. John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus speaking again. If you haven't memorized this, please do. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed or is crossed over from death into life. Okay, so what if I only had the promise in John chapter 11? And I, I tell somebody, well, Jesus said, he that believeth in me shall never die. And they say, well, what if you quit believing? Huh? Huh? What if you fail in your faith? What if your faith isn't strong enough anymore? 
Does that promise still apply to you? And that sounds like a reasonable argument. But see, the phrase shall never die, never is a long time. It doesn't say who believes in me forever shall never die. It says he who believes in me shall never die. Okay? So they'd be wrong anyway. But I can see their argument because it sounds reasonable. What if I only had the promise in John 10, 27 and 8? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. What if that's the only one I have? What if I quit following? What if I get all bungled up in some goofball doctrine that some church is teaching me and get sidetracked to where I don't even know how to walk with God anymore? I think it's all about which of the feasts I keep and whether I cut my hair a certain way or something. And I know people like that that are real believers that are caught up in this system of works. Are they still saved? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't affect them. It means they're off in left field someplace. They're not doing so well. But it doesn't affect his promise because you see shall never perish cuts out the possibility that their eternal life depends upon their continued steadfastness and proper doctrine of the faith or whatever it's not dependent on us never was okay third let's look at john 5 24 really carefully there was two conditions to the promise he says he that heareth my words that's the gospel and believeth on him who sends me you place your trust in god's grace through the blood of jesus at the cross you're saved okay those are the two conditions but what does he say the three clauses of the promise are one is hath everlasting life what tense is that that's present tense you have eternal life now. From the moment you trusted Jesus as your Savior, you have everlasting life now. And everlasting is everlasting. That's you know what eternal means. It goes on forever. But you have it now as a gift. It's not dependent on you. You don't have to wait till you die to find out whether you made the cut. Okay? The second one is shall not come into condemnation. Who's speaking? Jesus. He's the author of the whole Bible. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the entire future. And he says, based on your faith, there is never going to be a time when you will face the condemnation of God again, ever. Shall not come into condemnation. That's absolutely rock solid. And the third one is a little bit harder to read, but it says, is crossed over from death into life, or is passed over from death into life. In the Greek, that's called perfect tense, which means it was a an action that occurred in the past and has permanent effect on the future. It means it's a done deal. It means you can't go back. You can't cross back. The only use I know of it that we use all the time is you go into a store with a coupon for a pizza, let's say, and they say, I'm sorry, sir, this, this coupon's expired. This coupon is expired. What does that mean? It means it passed its due date sometime in the past and it will never be good again. They don't say it did expire at some time, and you're looking at it and say, oh, when's it good again? No, there is no good again. It expired on that day. It was over. And it is expired. It's worthless. Piece of little scrap of paper you got in your hand. That's it. You're not going to get a pizza. Unless you got some more pieces of paper with some dead president's face on it. Okay. That, that coupon is expired. You have crossed over from death into life, you can't go back. 
as permanent. Okay? What can change, though, is how we're going home. We're all going home. We're all going home one way or another. And during the time we're waiting, we want to be a light in a dark place. And these promises should affect our ability and our willingness to be that light in a dark world. The reason is because we're, we're literally in, invulnerable to the enemy. He can't touch us beyond what can happen in this world. I mean, I'm going home to Jesus no matter what. Samson went home to Jesus. Uh, consider Abraham and Lot. Both of them were believers. God says so, not me. Lot was a believer. If you don't believe it, read 2 Peter chapter 2. God said he was a righteous man. I never would have guessed it. But because I know they're both believers, then the next question makes sense too. Which do you think probably had a better homecoming? Faithful Abraham who walked with God his whole life or Lot who squandered every little bit he had and ended up with nothing. And the last thing we see about him is he'd gotten both of his daughters pregnant because he was drunk. Well, they got him drunk. They did it on purpose. But still, he made the choice. Nobody held a, had a gun to his head. Slingshot, I suppose. They didn't have guns back then. So Lot, I never would have seen him as a righteous man apart from God saying he was. Which one had the better homecoming? He lost everything. His testimony was shot. His, his sons-in-law didn't believe him when he told him God's going to destroy this place. We've got to get out of town. They thought it was a good joke. They laughed at him. They thought it was a big joke. Which one had the better homecoming? So how I respond to God's light is not going to affect my salvation. What it is going to affect is what kind of a homecoming have I got to expect? What kind of rewards am I going to have? What is eternity going to look like? I don't know. You know what's it going to be like in the kingdom? I don't know. God doesn't tell us very much. We still experience the fear of the Lord, but now it's based on our earnest desire to not displease our Father. I don't want to displease the Lord. I want to walk with God. That's all I want. And funnily enough, that's all he's asking. Walk with him. That's all he asks you to do. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 agrees with that. It says, What doth the Lord require of thee, O man, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord thy God? That's pretty simple. In fact, that kind of rings right along with what Jesus said. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. If you're walking with Jesus, it's going to look, people are going to see it. They're going to know what's happening. That seems within reach. That seems quite reasonable. Even in the midst of all the turmoil around us, that's all God's asking you to do, is to trust him and to walk with him. As we consider the howling chaos and the stormy darkness of the world around us, and as Mark pointed out, it's getting more and more clear. This is light. This is dark. There's not much gray area in between anymore. If you go and read the news and see the absolute evil things that are being said and done, as we consider that chaos and stormy darkness of the world around us, we need to remember that the reason we are here is to provide a lighthouse in that storm and a lighthouse in that darkness. You're the light of the world. No man lights a candle and puts it under a bushel. He puts it up on a candlestick so that it gives light to all in the house. That's why you're here. Okay. We're not just here to watch. 
we want to consider how to carry out the assignment we've been given. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you'd enlighten the eyes of our heart, enlighten our minds as to how we're to serve you, how we're to walk with you, how we're to shine as lights in a dark world, how we're to provide hope to those who have no hope, how we're to, to lead others to that same hope so they can share in that salvation and be the children of light even as we are. We ask that you change our hearts and illuminate our minds and enlighten our eyes so that we know how to walk with you would be the men and women of God that you've called us to be in Jesus' name. Amen.